Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamond. This is Talkar. Welcome to Talkar. How are you, Rob? I'm feeling really excited. Are you? Why is that? Because we have an amazing guest we today. Have the best guest. Who I have only ever met once before on um, our booth at Freeze Art Fair many years ago. Hello. I think it was like the second year I was working at Carl Friedman Gallery. Mm-hmm. And um, this guest came on and said hello. And um, our guest was dressed as Claire. Uh, at that event, mm-hmm. I think because it was a big, uh, glamorous um, opening VIP, VIP preview. Yeah. yeah, and I know that our guest likes to dress um, as Claire on special events. Um, I don't dress as Claire anymore at Vries, though. Because oh, really? I, I get pestered to death. I get pecked to death, and I'd never get anywhere without having to do a selfie every five feet. So <laughs> I don't do it anymore. Good to know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so um, our guest is also a CBE and um, an yes. RA, and Russell loves that because he loves having CBEs yes. on the show. <laughs> Let's get the playlist if you have a name with a CB or MBE next to it. I feel like we've achieved something. Um, yeah, really ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but we would like to welcome um, the artist Grayson, Grayson Perry. Perry. Hello. Hello. How are you doing? I'm great. Yeah, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm on an up. My life is charmed. Is it? Yes, totally. Has something changed recently? No. You know, I, I live in a glamorous world and I, I'm at a point in my career where I can ask for whatever I want and pretty much I can get it and I make a decent living and I do lots of fun things and travel and, you know, I have a really charmed life. What's an example of something that you want that you've got recently? Oh, that's a good question. Well, if I sort of say to Channel 4, I quite fancy making a TV series in America about the political divides, then they go, "Mm, okay. (laughs) And and you've literally just done that? Yeah, I've just come back from the States having made a three-part series about the the social and political divides in America. And it's been been great fun because I like America. I like travelling there. Yeah. And um, they were interesting, open... Well, of course, you know, our researchers always get the best correspondence to talk do you do you have researchers that you use for all your projects are they the same people that you trust or um, we get depend i mean like we have a kind of you know a, a kind of shifting staff in in it, the thing but i think we have people we often get people in who might be you know the right people for that subject right. you know 
or demographic sometimes yeah. it's useful. I like I always like to be on a shoot where there's at least half women. I always feel weird tromping into people's houses when it's all men. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Totally. So the the American show you've just been recording, um, you did an earlier show about the British political divide and Brexit. I did. Which then led to the Serpentine um exhibition, is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. yeah. So I saw that documentary. So are they is is that partly why you were looking at a uh, kind American. of larger global because it's all happening all over the world, isn't it? This kind of yeah, I think the basic kind of divide is nationalism versus globalization. You know, I think that most of the things can be sort of summed up. People have done well out of globalization, people who haven't, and a kind of retreat into identity. And yeah. do you do this through like an an art art route, like people looking at art and how that political? No, no, it's just. I mean, the, this last one is the most straight documentary I've done in that I go round and just talk to a bunch of people and find out stuff mm -hmm. you know um, there's no art in this one though I will make art on it I am actually already working on art that has spun out of my experience really? in America yeah and I'll be I'll be going to Freeze New York next year so I'll be taking those to Freeze New York so I can uh, maybe tell what you know what I found out about America and you're using there. photographs then from this trip and you're making them no just the ideas more and and you know and art I might have seen on the way and and mm -hmm. kind of aesthetic influences you know I, I pick and choose from everywhere you know I'm not a, if I would say contemporary art is pretty low down on the list of things that influences my work mm. really yeah other people's contemporary art yeah there's not many contemporary artists I think oh I'd like I like that that's that's I mean it, it happens who who do you like what of, out of contemporary artists yes. um I like uh, Mark Bradford very much yes, at yes, the moment yes. I Amazing. think he's quite cool um, and I like, uh, what's his name? Uh, Joshua, is it something Joshua? I can't remember what his name is. He's an, he does interiors, though. He's a West Coast American artist. I think he's very good. Okay, not Jonas Wood. Jonas Wood, yes, that's yes, what I mean. Yes, yes, yes. I like Mate, his work. Yeah, his interiors of houses and stuff, but it's kind of... Uh, it looks like it's done. That's yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shio Kosaka. Oh, okay, yeah, I like his paintings. I've got a pot by her. Do you like her? I don't know. I'm not that familiar with her work. I'm <laughs> right. familiar with his paintings. Yeah, though, which but then I if like you're very much. His, her her work is often shown in his in paintings. His yeah, it's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes, and actually, there's an interesting link to you because I guess a lot of his work is autobiographical as well, and you have a kind of sense of him working out his own psychology through his his art. Yeah, I, I did that. I went through a phase of that. Yeah, I think definitely. I would say now my work is more about a wider sort of social issues. Um, all work is autobiographical to a certain extent. Yeah. But now I would say my work is like, I've been through my introspective therapy phase, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think, interestingly, that was when I connected most to your work in the early days when you were you know, working out your mind, I guess, and like your experiences. Like I was really into um, collages you made. Oh um, gosh, yeah. Probably about 15 years ago or mm. so that Victoria Miro had. And I went to see them all and um, they were like really confused where I wanted to see them and not the pots at the time. I think everyone wanted to see the pots, but I was really I'm... into these collages <laughs> of like Claire and um, motorcycles and... Alan measles. Yeah, I mean, they, they were things that I did from when I was a student. You know, um, I always, I still keep a sketchbook, uh, quite an elaborate sketchbook in those days. So it was my main means of expression and that was my style. So I would have a whole huge stack of magazines and old encyclopedias and I would chop them up and, and make stuff. Um, yeah, I enjoyed that. that. And in many ways, that is... I've been kind of trying to replicate that energy and technique in other media. I mean, like it took me a long time to be able to do it with pottery. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, to get up the, to what, you know, with a piece of paper, you just put a bit of glue on the back and stick it down mm -hmm. on a pot, you know, to get that 
ceramic version of that is yeah. actually quite fiddly and long-winded. But that is actually a photograph in there, or is that some the other pots, glazing? Yeah. No, the, 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 it's a. You have to send a photograph off to a firm in Stoke on Trent. They make it into a transfer, which you put on top of the glaze and then fire it on. So it's a long, winded process. It's much quicker than it used to be, and yeah. much, much cheaper. Than really, it used to be. digital technology has been my greatest friend in the last ten years or so with the tapestries and with the with the pots, and also to start and set drawing. I just love drawing on on the computer rather than paper because you can be more ambitious mm -hmm. and you can correct it and you can do things that it would take you a week in an hour. Right, right, right. I was always quite interested in this idea that when I first discovered about your pots, say, and I would hear you talk about them, you would often emphasise the fact that they weren't thrown, they were done as coil pots. Yeah. But when you actually look at them, they're often way more technically advanced than a thrown one would be anyway. Because yes, the thrown one, especially at a larger scale, yeah. it takes a lot of energy to actually, you know, to actually, and to have the skill to do that. Yeah. But yours are incredibly skilled. And I think the thing I love about them is this idea of the collaged elements and the story and the narrative that, and it's not even that surprise things you often hear people go like the thing about him is you see it and you think it's just a domestic pot and then you get there and you you know you see all you these disturbing into, topics you, you and stuff. Yeah. But it's not even so much yeah. that shock factor you know that you're you're you're, you're not expecting to see what you're going to see on it it's more the actual like technical um yeah because i think people know what my work's like is is like oh now. that's true yeah, yeah they know they know what to expect when they yeah, come yeah, to yeah, my yeah, exhibition yeah. and so it's about sort of technical uh, and exquisite and things like that and, and that kind of mastery of layering and subtle kind of interaction of images i mean i did do a piece recently that had that effect of shock which was the carpet i made for my recent show which is um it's a car it's a real carpet made made in spain by a hand a carpet maker um, but it's got a homeless person on it mm. And uh, it's called Don't Look Down. And it's a very seductive object. You know, it's nice colours. It's a really nice carpet. And you think, ooh, I like that carpet. And then you go, ooh. Mm. You know, and, the, and that idea of walking on something that has a homeless person on it. Mm. And it's all about those sort of, that kind of glass floor below the super rich. Or not the super rich. I'd say the reasonably okay off. Mm -hmm. So for your new show in Mayfair, yes. was the location... Did, did the, did, I know the idea came out of this idea that someone had spoken to you at the Royal Academy and said, oh, the yellow colour you've painted on the wall is an interior decoration colour almost. And then that... It was, it was more about the way I'd arranged the room because I arranged the room in a... It was, the yellow was grey. That really worked. But also I'd arranged the room. I'd sort of done it kind of like frame to frame all the way around, but in a spectrum. So I had like orange and green and black and white and mm -hmm. red and blue all going around the room. And, it was, and then I grouped them. They also had loads of political jokes in there as well. Um, but it was quite of a piece, I suppose, you know. And I think there's a, there's still a snobbery between the kind of high-minded political intellectual sort of part of making art and the decorative, sensuous, covetable mm. side of art. And I, I try to sit in the middle on that. You know, I try to use politicalized social ideas and I'm also trying to make objects that people really want. Yes. Mm -hmm. and, they, and they do. Yeah, of course <laughs> they do. And that's great. And I don't know, I think... Maybe some people find that like I've sold out or they find it disturbing or that I'm a hypocrite. And I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Three, tick, tick, tick. You know, take it on the chin, mate. Complicated idea. Oh, grow up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I think the art world is sort of often mired in this sort of idea that seriousness is only the sort of um, right on uh, intellectually obscure difficult idea you know you mm. come into it you come out of an exhibition feeling like you've done your homework mm. 
you know. But people go to galleries on their day off. Mm-hmm. Well, I do. We yeah, do. exactly. It's totally. a it's a leisure activity, folks. Do you feel like you get a hard time for your art for the messages you're putting out there? Do you feel like you've um maybe from some art world insiders who feel obliged to kind of like rail against my kind of uh, pandering to popularity and accessibility, you know, but. And then they moan, oh, he's too famous now. You know, his, his celebrity is getting in the way of his work. And it's like, didn't stop Picasso. Yeah, yeah, You know, yeah. it doesn't stop Gilbert and George. doesn't stop all the other famous artists in the world. So why does suddenly is it me that they're picking on? And actually, I feel like whenever you've done really accessible things like making TV series, they're often very linked to your making anyway. Like, even though the American one hasn't necessarily had work made yet, but it's going to respond to, the new work's going to respond to that experience. Yeah. It's, like, you have always managed to connect it with your practice yeah and it, you know the, it is a separate thing i silo my creativity so i have tv is definitely tv it is no way video art you know my stage performances are a night out having a bit of a laugh you know sort of almost stand up yeah my artwork is my artwork you know they're not performance art and video art that you know you're able to make work while you're also doing those other projects yeah yeah and, everything, I, and they're everything all serious link, everything links though like yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 they're all serious they all feed serious into thing. each other yeah comedy is deadly serious you know it's yeah. it's you know people who think that comedy is a lighter thing you know the 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 the, the art critic of the telegraph once sent the theater critic to review the summer show because he thought it he said oh it's comedy and I say, fuck you, yeah, it's fucking comedy. Yeah. And all the better for it because, you know, po-faced, earnest sort of think pieces are just the people, oh, yawnorama, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I, it's, it's a profound thing. He, yeah. A profound thing. Yeah. So when you first started making work and you would look at the art world, did you always feel a kind of need to try and break down the elitism? Was it something that really bothered you? It's lovely to have something to kick against. You know, it's so inspiring and there's nothing like a little bit of an irritability and mischief to sort of like get you off your hind legs in the morning, you know, and really get you going. And yeah, I'm happy to, I'm always on the lookout for something that kind of has a, is a bit barbed, is a bit mischievous and maybe makes people uncomfortable because, um, you know, the art world thrives on that and always has done. It's just that now it tends to be coming from a different angle. Because, you know, the 20th century was this great formal experimentation and people were going, are you right? Oh, how could that be art? You know, get over it. You know, we've done it now. We've done all that. But now I think as art is focusing on the socio-political world, yeah. you know, and it's, it's very much about those sort of issues, that's where the edge is. The edge is also around the back of those issues. When, you, when, you're, when you're dealing with socio-political issues that they perhaps don't, agree with or they don't want to think the art world is a part of or mm. something like that and I mean you want to go eh, mate, you know get with it you know yeah yeah because there's this sort of assumption that we're all on the same page sometimes you know we're all right on students still yes I want to now imagine you making your pots and I want to know especially the ceramics the process you go through and you used to go through and how that's changed you're saying about how using computers now has sped things up but how you would Go to work, basically. How long? You... If I'm starting on a piece, yeah, I mean, it's still the same process exactly. I've refined right. it over the years, uh -huh. but the actual process is pretty much the same. You know, I, I will, um, I'll have an idea for a part, and you, quite often I'll go through all my books on ceramics or even go to a museum and look for something that will be the kind of, um, give me an idea about the shape. Would that the, be like the V&A, like the ceramics? Yeah, I'll go to the V&A ceramics department or the British Museum or somewhere yeah. and look at vases and get a kind of feel for maybe some 
some overall uh, textural or colour balance or something like that, that kind of feel of it. Mm -hmm. And then I'll go home and I'll do a very rudimentary little sketch of what I want to do with just a few notes saying, you know, this part is going to be about the Tories or thin women with art or whatever. Mm. And then I think what, when I've got an idea of like the, the, the kind of idea of the part, I'll think about that the shape has to sort of somehow, because there's, there's a language there which is very unconscious, which is certain shapes are more utilitarian, certain shapes are more about kind of drawing room elegance, certain yeah. shapes are more primal, certain shapes are associated with different cultures. And So what suits the message? Or yeah, yeah, so there's a vague thing. And then I, I sort of work out how big it's going to be. Yeah. I do a cardboard template of half of a silhouette, so I've got something to work against. And then I roll out the base, start coiling it, and you do it about... I'd say no more than about six to eight inches at a time, probably. Uh, and you just let it dry for a day and then you add the next layer and add the next layer and add the next layer. And then when you've got the whole shape, you carve that down, you refine it so it's really nice and smooth. And then you apply, start applying all the decoration, which might be layers of slip, stencil it, stamp it, inlay it, carve it, put on little knobbly bits that I've got all those little moulds that I can put on. Yeah. And then you fire that and then you glaze it and paint it and then finally you put the transfers on and the last thing you always do is put the luster on the gold of a silver mm. or mother of pearl or something like that. And do you go into a trance-like state when you're making art? <laughs> <laughs> do you think you can call Radio 4 or like my playlist a kind of trance-like <laughs> state? I don't know, no. no. I mean, yeah, there's a lots of kind of what I call dibbing, you know, which is just getting on with it, which is yeah. one of the joys, you know, as opposed to, say, writing a book where you can't really coast. Yeah. But, you know, when you're making art, you, it's loads of, sometimes whole days where I'm just going dib, 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 doing the same thing all day. Mm -hmm. And I love that. That's like a joy. You don't ever get frustrated in yourself that you've decided to make this and you've given yourself a really hard time. Every single piece I do that. Every single piece you do that. Because that golden fuzzy glow of the imagined artwork out yeah. there, you know, that's great. That's when you have that kind of, the, the real nub of it. But then as soon as you start to kind of bring that idea into focus and have to make you realise there's a thousand decisions you have to make yeah. and they're going to be onerous and you're going to agonise over things and things are going to be long and boring to do even though you've had the thought in a moment. And the thing, the final thing when you open the kiln for the fine time is usually a disappointment. Compared, is it? Yeah, compared to the golden fuzzy cloud the, yeah the fantasy and the reality yeah yeah and but, then how often do you destroy them like how, never never you know how much they're worth no because <laughs> i that's not true that's not true because i heard that in the early days you would oh, make yeah. four and like one in four you would have to destroy because you didn't like it yeah and i was, but these I was days, very are you better hard. at doing it do you think i was very hard on my own work and now i spot mistakes coming down the road oh, i'm see. so experienced now yeah, that yeah, i yeah. know when a pot is going wrong from early on so i knock it back on course. So you fix it before you... That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. What, what does Grayson eat and drink in the studio to supply himself with the energy needed? Well, I just go to... I mean, I either bring in a sandwich that I've made myself in the morning or I... Uh, what would I be in go the sandwich? The cheese and salad sandwich, <laughs> you know. Lovely. You know, just something basic like that. Or, you know, sometimes I pop to Pret and get something a bit fancier. Ooh, lovely. Or I go to the cafe, you know, and have egg and sausage and chips. You lovely. Know. Yeah. Which I have to watch now because I am a little bit, especially after America, I'm a little bit tubsky. Yeah, the proportions over there are a bit more than yeah. sausages, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Do you ever make work in the studio by yourself as Claire? No, no, too messy. Oh yeah, it would ruin and distracting. 
Right. You know, it'd be like kind of working with your girlfriend on your lap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when did you when did you name your can we say it's an alter ego? Can we no, say it's no. It's me in a dress. But I agree, because I don't think it is an alter ego. And that I always think that's a really kind of that's a way for like other people to like get Understand. their head around it. Yeah. Because yeah. I, I feel like it's a whole. I feel like you are just a person and yeah. that's a part of your personality yeah. and that's who you are. Yeah, some days I wear a raincoat and some days, you know, I I don't, you know, and that's just like the dressing up. But obviously it's fetish. You know, it's it's a turn on. You know, it, it is. Yeah, but I mean, my latter years, you know, so that doesn't play quite such a big part. But you know, early on, it was like Temple City. You know, really, of course. So you'd be out at events as Claire, and you'd have a. No, I never used to go to events that often. And no, no, you, you wouldn't be at an event. Well, maybe you would. Depends what the club was, I suppose. Because <laughs> <laughs> you, you lived in a bedsit with Boy George. No, and... no, no, no. Oh, is that not We're going to correct this, this now. This comes up every time someone's yeah. read my yeah, fucking rough. Wikipedia. <laughs> oh, okay. No, I never did. I knew, I knew him a little tiny bit before he became famous because we moved in the same circles. Right. And... Um, yeah, but the, the, this, it's on. I think it's on my Wikipedia page, and then it always comes up, oh, and I always have to then. deny it. Yeah, how, scrub it off. How did you come up with the name Claire? Why? Why was Claire? Oh, that was my then girlfriend Jen. Because um, when I joined a, uh, a transvestite club, mm-hmm. they insisted on anonymity because it was a you know you didn't you people didn't want to you know you know other people didn't want to know, them to know that you're dressing up and whatever. So they insisted on a feminine, and you all had to have a feminine. And so my my girlfriend just looked at me and went, "Oh, you're Claire." <laughs> Where was this up. club? Was this in London or Essex? No, it was a national organisation called the Beaumont. I think it's still going, the Beaumont Society, and uh, they had kind of meetings in you know all over the country in different areas, you know, and and you'd you'd go and you'd have a little sort of vetting meeting to make sure you were sort of genuine, and then you'd go to the meetings, and they have like. You know, weekends in hotels and things like that. What was that? I mean, what was that like for the first time of having an outlet? Weird or... meeting other transvestites for the first time because suddenly you look at them and go, "That's me! <laughs> I'm the man in the funny man in the dress." Uh huh. Uh huh. But I... they were jolly. The first two I met, he was brilliant. One of them was a farmer, and they had been sailing all day en femme. Really? On the Solent. Oh. Yeah. Have you made friends for life from these? No, I don't know many transvestites now because I, I, you know, I just don't, I don't have the time or. Yeah, the energy to do it anymore. I've been quite interested in this idea that when you're growing up and you have like this feeling that you want to be a transvestite, say, and it's probably a very like private, personal thing and you wouldn't necessarily discuss it with your family or, um, you know, this could just be a generalisation here. But but then, then for you to then become this kind of well-known artist where part of the reason in a way that you've had such a... Uh, a lot of publicity and attention to your work. I mean, I've heard you speak about this idea that it almost helped you because getting attention in the art world can be a difficult thing. Um, because, oh gosh, yeah, it's a bit yeah, of, yeah, and it's been a huge kind of help to you. Yeah, but it's quite interesting how private and personal it would have been, and almost like maybe feelings of shame and all this kind of stuff that you yeah. have with it. Delicious shame. But, yeah, what an aphrodisiac. But yeah. then, <laughs> exactly, yeah. But then how is it? Pu- is it? Then how public it's become, wow. and like, and yeah. how it's almost become like a super strength, like a public strength or something. For yeah, it's kind of weird. I mean, but from in. From from my point of view, you know, fame has uh, ruined being a transvestite because I'm no longer that weird pervert that you can kind of, you know, that feels humiliated walking down the street. Now I'm Grayson Perry, the artist. Well, know. we were talking about the other night because it's like people talk to you like the common man will come up yeah. to you as Claire and just speak to you without any... Yeah, I hope one of the good things I've done in my kind of 
cross-dressing is kind of normalise it or at least make it approachable and not yeah. scary and weird, you know, and it's fine, you know. And it, So that's a good thing that's come out of it, I think. Did you ever feel threatened when you first started doing it? Like on the street or walking around? I might feel threatened. Whether I was is another matter. You know, I had the odd dodgy moment. But we all have dodgy moments. Yeah. You know, the person most likely to get attacked in the world is a teenage boy. Yeah. You know, yeah. um... Uh, I, I I was I had that experience. Yeah, I think you know yeah. statistically. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean now I wonder about you know I, I was I was at a party the other night and I couldn't be bothered to get a cab and I walked home half an hour in a frock and it was fine as long as I got flatties on. <laughs> you always keep them in your purse. As no, well, no, no, no. So I'm I'm of an age where flatties are becoming increasingly uh, attractive. Do you know what I love? is that every year, and it's still ongoing, is it an annual thing where you have the students at St. Martin's, yeah, Ashton College, around the oh, road, behind, around the yeah. corner, yeah. design uh, a frock for Claire every year? No, 20 frocks. Twi- what? Yeah, yeah. But do you... I do- need more than one. So, and they, so, they ha- so every student gets to design a frock for you every year, That's part, yeah. and that's part of like the course now. Yeah, second year fashion print. I've done it for 15 years. Um, and-, and you fund that. That's something you... I buy the frocks, yeah. I off pay them. Off right. them, yeah. I give them, I think at the moment it's like 550 quid I give to them if if I choose. If I choose their frock, which usually is about half to two-thirds, I'd say. Wow. They've got to put in the effort. It's a real exchange. It's not like some, you know, exercise. Yeah. If I don't, if the customer doesn't like it, then it's not going to happen. And do you go in every year to get measured up with them and stuff? Do you do all that? Or? I go in once a week for like six weeks. So I go in for a day and I look at their designs and I sort of push them in the direction I think that will work for me. And yeah. you know, I've done it a long time now. So How I many know. years has it been going on? 15. And have any of them designers gone on to be like huge superstar yes. designers? Curiously, the other day I was walking down Bond Street and I never normally am drawn to stuff in Bond Street, but I saw this coat and I thought, that coat looks like it's bloody made for me, I thought. you know, And it was like this puffer jacket with big daisies on it and it had Diamante buttons. And I bought it. And then I worked out it was designed by Richard Quinn, who was somebody that I um, sort of worked with here as a student. Wow. And he, I think he even won the prize because I give prizes. For the best one. Yeah, and he was very, you know, talented, obviously talented and very ambitious is what I got. He had a lot of energy. Uh-huh. But yeah, he's now a recognised working designer. It's great. That's amazing. Yeah. I feel like the evolution of Claire, if you look at like the history of the way you were dressing as Claire before and then you look now, the, the outfits seem to be getting more and more kind of glamorous by the week. I mean, more and more kind of extreme somehow. Like, yeah. Is that, is that something that's come through that collaboration? Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, my t- I tend to d- design the clothes for myself now. Like every year I, I work with my dressmaker and I make two or three outfits for myself. On the whole, they tend to be on the wearable end of a spectrum because mm. the students will supply the unwearable thing. Wow. Mm-mm. You know, like if I want an outfit that for a big red carpet, then the students will do it for me. Right, you know, right, right. If, if I want something to look relatively, you know, innocuous walking down the street, I have to design it for myself. And who would be like your style kind of icons that you would look to for Claire? Like are, are there Depends. certain? I've got a or, range, you yeah. know. Like I, I love some designers. Say like someone like Anisha Rora, I think his name is. You know, the Indian designer. I think mm. he, he's really great. And uh, there's a there's a quite a few designers. Now, the present uh, incumbent in Gucci, I think he's great. You know, I, I like those. But you know, my budget doesn't run to that. But uh, and they probably wouldn't fit me anyway. But style wise, you know, it could be anything from sort of historical dress. But you know, things like I've always had a thing for the kind of big, bouffant, well-groomed woman. You know, right. like someone like 
Rain Spencer or Margaret Thatcher, you know, those kind of women have always been, because that's what I grew up with. That was yeah. the heavily, they were the 1960s women that I grew up around. And that's when your uh, sexuality is formed. You know, that's why, you know, everybody's, everybody's a fetishist. You know, it's just that some fetishists are seen as normal. You know, if you like big tits or muscly men or tall people, then, you know, that's a fetish. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And where, where, where do you store the dresses? <laughs> Good point. Yeah, I am. Um, you have an archive. Yeah, I do. do you? I've, I've still got most of. Yeah, I think I've got them all pretty much still. So you've never given like thrown any away. No, I think that would be unfair. Plus, you know, I never know they might come in. But you only wear them once, right? No, no. Oh, right. Some I've worn a lot. You know, I, I every year I, when I'm doing the briefing, I sort of say to them, you know, uh, you know, I want you to go mad, mm. but remember that I'll, I'll show them the pictures of the dresses I've worn the most, mm. and I said the thing is they're comfy. I can, wear them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can wear them when it gets over 20 degrees centigrade yeah. and, you know, they haven't fell apart. You know, yeah, these yeah, yeah. three simple things, but you would be surprised that every year, like last year, I don't think there was hardly an outfit that I could have worn on a summer's day. You know, they were all too hot. So we're waiting for the v and I was going to say, this is like a V&A exhibition. It's like when Kylie oh, yeah. did her one or yeah. I'm sure Lady Gaga will do yeah. one one day. But yeah, yeah, I've got a couple of hundred dresses. Oh, that's so wow. good. Yeah. Are they all hanging up or are they Yeah, they're all so, No, they're all hanging up in bags mainly. Yeah, they're so I look after them and I keep them in the dark. That's quite important too. Right. Because they fade, things fade, you know, or just look a bit secondhand if you leave them in the sun all the time. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And I know that you designed, I listened to your podcast with Jay Rayner, um, the food critic. Yes. And you went, um, for people listening to this podcast, you can also check that one out. Um, it's called Out to Lunch with Jay Rayner. But in that one, you you turned up to the lunch wearing wearing like a, a oh, PVC yeah. outfit that you created. I loved the sound of that outfit, though. That was one oh, of was my it most squeaking all the way through? Genius. Was it? No, no, I don't no know. but apparently it was perfect because if you spill food on it, you can just oh, wipe just it straight off. Food, yeah. But it was like a kind of jumpsuit almost that you'd wear skiing or something as a kid. Yeah, it was idea. sort of based on, I suppose, what, you know, I see little kids in their little puffer jackets, you know, that were really colourful and, and I thought you can't get an adult version of that so I actually designed my own kind of kiddie fabric very colourful with dolls and flowers and teddy bears on it and stuff and mm-hmm. I blew it up to, to my scale mm-hmm. and then I had it printed and then I had it covered in PVC mm-hmm. and then my um, then I designed an outfit that's like a giant puffer jacket with matching sort of um, sort of knickerbocker dungarees mm-hmm. And boots, patent leather boots as well. All of and it's even got mittens and a hood as well. If I want with fur round, 
<laughs> so I look. Like you didn't a, wear that to lunch. So you didn't wear the mittens while you was eating. No, no. But that's you know, it's a look. It's, it's one of my fave looks, you know, because it's sort of fun. But it needs to be a relatively cool day to wear that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And for your new show, you've actually done a series of bags. Yes. Is it with Osprey? Yes. Um, and those have clasps. Um, that are like the penis of you have to twist the Alan, ball. You have to twist Alan the measles, no? Yeah, yeah. It's Which the, I love that kind of subvert. Because I like those little brass latches you yes, get on exactly. posh yeah. handbags. And so I thought, well, yeah, so it's, so it's Alan measles and then in order to close it, you have to sort of push his penis through and twist his balls, yeah. So thinking of that product, you've made a lot of like memorabilia and um, like artist uh, editions edition yeah, yeah. and multiples. And I think you're one of the artists that does that quite successfully. I remember when you did your British Museum show, yeah. which I think is probably one of the greatest things you did. I mean, I, I think uh, yeah, it was very, because it was so intelligent as well. This is the As opposed to my other shows, you mean? No, no, no. I'm not, <laughs> I don't mean that. I'm just but saying this, it was, I think it's a really show. important show, that one. I, oh, I yeah. really liked it. I had a long chat with Louisa Buck once about it. And I, I think the way you you put your work within that context of history, and it was actually really really well done. It's not. I think it's a difficult thing to pull off, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I was competing um, with the entirety of world civilization. Exactly. Mm. That was a big ask. But mm. I think that proved your kind of intellectual, you know, prowess or whatever. No, it's one but, of my pr- proudest achievements. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But one of the things I loved is the merchandise that came with that. Like, do you enjoy that side? Yeah. Because, like, my, my cousins, for example, Jenny and my goddaughter, Keris, they buy a lot of your your products. And she has one of your... Um, uh, piggy banks, piggy banks exactly oh, yeah. and then a scarf I think and a tea towel and all these different things and they seem to bring such joy to such a wider audience but I treat them to? I treat them on the whole like um, artworks in themselves you know especially the scarves and things like that uh, and uh, I work with a guy called Kit Grover who specialises in the merchandise for art galleries and he's brilliant Nick, so he'll always interpret like he ca- I don't know if it's him or me that came up with the idea of a yoga mat for this show you know? yeah. and it was like instantly it was like yeah, yeah. perfect you know, yeah. a yoga mat you know, it says so much about the kind of people I'm talking about you know, those sort of breezy people signalling their virtue right I like yoga <laughs> Breezy I've just people yeah, yeah, no, I'm just sure started. you do it for all the right reasons whatever they are. <laughs> I just want to say that Alan Measles was your teddy bear that's what we're referencing growing yes, up yes very important Alan Measles uh, he has, he's my kind of uh, now that people know who he is I can use him as a shorthand all the time for kind of masculinity or God you know so he's like a kind of character that I've done dozens of times in my work and he's still living in your bedroom now yeah, on his golden throne. But the original Alan Measles doesn't look like... Because the one that you've created within your work and your drawings is so kind of fantastical, multicoloured, kind of exaggerated form. But I've seen the actual picture of the real Alan Measles. Yeah, he's a, really a real, bad, like, old-fashioned, year old kind of World War Two almost, like, teddy bear. It reminds me of a grandma. Like she used to have one. or something yeah. has, yeah. But they, yeah. I actually love him, uh, like, just as... Like, I, I like the character within the work, but he's become more like some sort of avatar or some kind of... Yeah, like, exactly that. And that's how I've used him. You know, I've done... I, I sort of take him on a tour, depending on what culture uh, I'm sort of ripping off this week. You know, I'll do a kind of version. So, you know, we've had Islamic Alan and Chinese Alan and and uh, kind of African Alan, you know, had different versions of Alan over the years. And I found the whole story of when you were a child, like growing up and you might have had like trauma within your family home, you know, with your stepfather and so on. But this idea that your fantasy world that started to be created and your imagina- imagination yeah. and I guess your creative artist mind as it grew as a young child was a, a, a kind of associated with that bear and you kind of creating narratives for that bear. Yeah, and that's still what goes on now. You know, yeah. And I think we lay down the kind of basic pathways of our imagination and our creativity in childhood. And then they become the kind of motorways, if you like, of your imagination. And then you grow off a little branches or, you know, 
And um, that's how, you know, it's formed, you know. And so one major branch was my sexuality. Another major branch was Alan Measles and my fantasy world, you know. And then, you know, other things have come along as I've got more older and more educated, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And I, I like that idea that cr- creativity and imagination can help you survive traumatic experiences. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of artists will tell you that they see their studio as a sanctuary, you know, and uh, it's like... And I used to sort of think of my creativity like an internal shed, you know, and when I felt kind of vulnerable, I could kind of go up the inter- you know, imaginary steps into the internal shed and shut the door and, and just have thoughts about art or whatever it was. In the, you know, when I was young, it would have been Alan Measles' world. And, um, and that that's a kind of comforting thing to do you know you, you because it's all inside you don't have, it's, you're not disturbed by the outside world mm. so do you think being an artist and making art has actually ended up making you a happier person because oh god yeah therapy think, total therapy i remember a lot of the early interviews you seem not not necessarily angry but you, you had some kind of like whether it was politically motivated or against the art world's elitism all these things you definitely were like I think I'm still like that. Yeah, but that's what I was going to say. But I I also feel like maybe, I think maybe having a child yourself, having your your marriage with your wife, like all of those influences, but primarily probably making art. Do you think that's helped make you a happier person? Oh, yeah. But I think the main thing that's made me happy is therapy. You know, I wouldn't lay it all at art store. You know, you know, I always agree. I had a great experience in therapy. My wife is a psychotherapist, you know, and she wasn't your therapist. No, right. no, that would be unethical. Yes, um, but she obviously recommended that I had a go at it, and um, it did me a world of good. It, intellectually and emotionally, it was the best thing, and still, you know, it still informs. I view the world now. You know? Sometimes people say when they're creative, they don't want to do therapy, especially musicians I know. They'll be like, I can't go to therapy because I won't be able to write songs anymore. It might fuck up your instinct. No, exactly, because they feel that's like... That's what they say but, to actors about drama school, is that if you're an instinctive actor and they you go to drama school and they start going like, why are you doing that? And it makes you question your own instincts. It can fuck you up and make you technical. I but you like. didn't find that with your therapy? No, I thought of it as like someone coming into your tool shed and tidying it up. You know, you've still got the tools and all the rubbish is gone. You know, and I think that a lot of people Ooh, think good. that they are are their quirks and I think that's an illusion mm. you know we, we have our emotional framework and our skills and we can bring them to bear and, and surely you know you want to optimise that mm. a lot of people you know struggle if they've got I mean if, if a person is just doing okay and is not having any kind of uh, mental health issue then don't worry about it just get on with it but if you're having problems don't re- think that they're a they're supporting your creativity. They might well be getting in the way of it. Mm. And your wife wrote a book about childhood and growing, uh, being parenting, yes. and bringing up children, and it's an acclaimed book now. Yes. And your relationship with her, I've often, I've, I think I've read once or twice, you say something like, your best ideas came from your wife, maybe. Is, is, yeah. is that relationship like a really important... Of course. Yeah, yeah because, you know, we discuss, um, you know, have long conversations about, uh, relationships and emotional sort of uh, and society and you know that, those sort of things and you know we, uh, that's the lens we share looking at the world so we have those discussions and I check out you know she's she's pretty, very good at kind of whether I'm being bonkers or not right you know like whether I'm ha- whether I'm because my tendency is to see the world and think everybody thinks like me and she's mm. saying no that's just you Grace <laughs> the world isn't like you so it's she... important to have that sounding board yeah yeah. does she yeah. critique your work as well yeah yeah I mean you know she. I like her to like it mm. that would be, you know if, if I did something and she didn't like it, it was like, I'd probably be a bit upset. question it would you right? yeah I would so as a fellow Essex boy 
How much has Essex played into your work? I know you built the house for Essex a few years back, which yeah. is amazing, in Rabness. That's right. On the river. Um, but how much has the actual growing up in Essex played into your work? Particularly early on, it's very important, I think, for my sort of sense of identity. And, and it was before identity sort of really has the vibe it has now. Mm-hmm. Um, because if I said I came from Essex, people would go, where is Essex? You know, mm. it didn't have this strong identity, not in the uh, the 80s. And it, and it wasn't till the late 80s, I think people, the Essex jokes started to come along yeah, and the white stilettos and all those sort yeah. of cliches, which were kind of had an element of truth in them yeah. because of the sort of, sort of Cockney diaspora, I suppose, that yeah. makes up the southern half of Essex. I always describe it to Americans as the New Jersey of Britain. Yeah, that's what I say. Yeah. That's what I say. From Manhattan, it is Jersey... Yeah, Essex is to London. Yeah, and then but the northern part, which I, you know, and I lived in various parts of Essex. The northern part is actually very rural and yeah, old. Beautiful. Some bits of it are beautiful, historical. The village I'm from, uh, where I moved to when I was about fourteen, Billericay, was is tr- twinned with Billericay, Massachusetts, and it's where the Mayflower, oh, right. the people from the Mayflower <laughs> went over. It's like, and people think some people said to me, "Isn't Essex just one big shopping centre?" No, it's not at all. I mean, you know, it's 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 a sort of schizophrenic county. Yeah. I would describe it, you know, because it's it's a home county, so it is very influenced by London. Uh, but at the same time, it has this sort of, yeah, I think slightly undiscovered northern half that's very sort of rural because it's overshadowed by the identity of uh, the only way is Essex mm. and things like that. But it's, mm. you know, good people come out of Essex. Billy Bragg, Russell Brand, Russell Tovey. Yes. You know, fantastic <laughs> people. But I like you describing it as a Cockney diaspora. Yeah. That is beautiful and I've never heard that before and that makes total sense because so many gangsters moved out and bought these they big do. houses in <laughs> They <Essex>. do. <laughs> totally that. They pave over the drive, they've got two Range Rover Sports Correct. and a Fiat 500 for the wife. Exactly. <laughs> So we ask every guest that comes on two questions. Right. First question is, if you could do an art heist and you have a touchstone artwork anywhere in the world, anything in the world, right? and you can steal it and live with it forever, what would that be and why? Oh, golly. Uh, yeah, that's... Um, okay. Um, it probably changes over the time. Um, I mean, it used to be Bruegel. Yeah, but my one of this week. I, I've I've seen a lot of museums lately, uh, and I was in Rome over the weekend, uh, and um, I was looking in the Capitoline Museum, and there's the famous sculpture of Romulus and Remus and the wolf drinking from the from the teeth of yeah. the thing, and it's beautiful because the 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 wolf sculpture, which is bronze itself, is ancient. It's like I think it's ancient Greece or Thracian or something. They're yeah. not quite sure, but the Romulus and Remus they're Renaissance, so they're like quite cheruby. Yeah. And I love it. And, and it's on a fantastic plinth. Um, and the room it's in is great. So I wouldn't mind. That's my present favourite artwork. I really I like that. it. Uh, and where, where was it in Rome? It's in the Capitoline Museum, which okay. is on the Capitol Hill. It was, wasn't it based on the thylacine cat, which is now extinct? Is it? I think that was what the... Is that what it is? Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. But anyway, it's a great sculpture. It's got that kind of... It's sort of elegant and primitive, which yeah, is that yeah. great energy. Like folk got. art. It. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who, who are your ceramicists you look at, like historical ones or working now that you're like... They're doing a good job. Um, I mean, I've, I like sort of the whole culture of ceramics. So I tend to like sort of, you know, Islamic ceramics. It feeds into my work. I like the kind of sort of the the ceramic purity of it. It's still even the most sort of um, highly crafted Islamic ceramics. You still see that they're ceramic and the glaze is still a little bit runny and the, and the cobalt is still a little bit bleedy and things like that. Mm-hmm. And a lot of, you know, Chinese, Japanese... Uh, these are the kind of classic ceramic cultures 
Um, I quite like some uh, pot- pottery from some of the African countries. Yeah. You know, the traditional kind of societies. Um, so I, I, yeah, I'll, I'll pick and choose, you know. And I like early British, you know, folk, uh, when it, when you had like um, slipwear, early British slipwear. Yeah, like Lucy Rye or... No, no, no. Lynch. I'm no. talking early, early as in, you know, 15th, 16th century. Oh, I think, century. right, 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 right. You know... Uh, like Chuck, tankards for... Yeah, Thomas Toft, you know, big plates and lovely old harvest jugs that have been carved yeah. and stuff like that. I, folk art is a big influence on me. Totally. And, and uh, outsider art, of course. Yeah. So all those things. I don't tend to be influenced by contemporary art though of course you have to, if you're in the business you have to keep an eye on it make sure what the opposition do you collect is. no not really i mean i i collect dresses dresses and motorbikes seem to be the things i kind of accumulate well that's interesting i really wanted to talk to you about motorbikes because one of the things i've always loved in your work is this idea of freedom and the idea of transport so whether it be planes from like world war Two or something but this idea of planes i know that was an early yeah. A motif for you but the main one for me is motorbikes because motorbikes are a bigger passion as art is for you in your life no well i've probably spent more money on them than anything you know because i've got this very expensive habit of having custom motorcycles built um which are eye-bleedingly expensive <laughs> and uh it's you know it's something i love and i think that you're right i mean i think what it is is a metaphor when I was when I was going through therapy, most of my dreams would either feature a car, a skateboard, a mountain bike, or a motorbike, because they were all about the drive of life. I think I'm a very driven, and I like to be in control. It was all about control yeah. and stuff like this. So that as a motif, it's cropped up again and again in my unconscious, and still, you know, in my my in my recent show, you know, there's a great big huge print of a car. Yes. Um, so I I do, yeah, that's something that I will come back to a time and time again. I think it's that sort of drive of life. It's the journey of life. It's the narrative and the romance. And there's a sort of your, your, your sort of in life traveling through it, but you're also isolated from it. So I, as an, I'm a very self-reliant, driven person. So that's me. And I heard you talk about the idea of being at a red light. And if you're on a light, if you're on a, a bike and you've got the red light and then as it turns green, that feeling of like being able to go off it yeah. faster than any car or... Yeah, if you sit on a bike that's got, you know, anything from 100 horsepower up um, and you, yeah, drop the clutch at the lights, you know, you know <laughs> all about acceleration, you know, yeah, yeah. Which, which I think people who drive, even you know, sports cars can be phenomenal, but uh, a motorbike, you're there and... I just like the whole mechanicalness of it. Mm. And coming to today's interview, you cycled here Mm. and I offered to send a car when I was speaking to um, Victoria Miro to organise the interview. And they were like, oh, no, 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 Grayson will come on his bike. And I said to my friend Ben, who's he writes in The Independent, and he was like, I love Grayson Perry because he cycles and he really believes in cycling. And I didn't even know that about you. And Ben's got this whole thing about trying to make London more friendly for cyclists because obviously, A, environmentally, and it's happening slowly, but 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 it's been a big thing politically. I think it's, it's, it, in some ways, I think that the, the the environmental message is great, but I don't think that's why people cycle. Okay. I think most people cycle because it's quicker. Yes. Right. You know, that's I certainly did, why I, I cycle. Bikes, yeah. You know, it, it's it's you know even Top Gear did a test where they raced across London, and the bicycle trounced the rest of the way. You know. <laughs> you know? Um, and so, yeah, if you want to bike, you know, I I halve my journey times basically, and so. I've always cycled in London, and now it's becoming more popular, which makes it, you know, it makes has good things about it. But you know, cycling in rush hour can be challenging sometimes, you know, because you put a macho arsehole uh, on a bike, he's the same macho arsehole who's in the car. Right. <laughs> Do you wear a crash helmet? 
Uh, most of the time, yeah, I do. If I'm if I've had a hairdo, though, I don't. Did you wear one today? I wore one today because I did. You know, I'm not dressed up today. But if I'm going out, because quite often I ride as Claire to a do. So you have a customised crash helmet for the. No, day. I just I might put a headscarf on to save my hair in the wind. <laughs> but, you know. but you have made customised bikes, no? Oh yeah, you, know, like you made one for bike. Alan Measles yeah. as well, didn't you? Yeah, I think we had a I had a motorbike for Alan Measles with a shrine on for him, and then uh, I've had a, 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 a I did a bike as a push bike as a uh, artwork for my show at the Serpentine, which had a big silver statue on the front of it. What was the bike you were driving, riding on the cover of your book? Um, what book is that? The autobiography. Oh, that's just the one we borrowed for the photo shoot. Oh, okay, it was like right. an oversized adult tricycle. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, I wanted to look like a little kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Love that. So the other question we ask every guest who comes on Talk Art is, what is your favourite colour? That is a question I absolutely hate. Yes! Why, <laughs> why do you hate it, Grayson? Because... It, you know, it's that. I, I hate the word "wash your favorite." Really, I don't because I change all the time. And as as someone who's passionate about color, I would say that my favorite color is the one that goes with the color I've just chosen. So it's all about you know relationships, and you know color is like for visual artist is like perfect pitches for a musician. So it's you know there's certain artists who have like say someone like Matisse who had sort of perfect color pitch. And some artists don't quite have it. You know, they might be brilliant on the concept, their drawing might be a phenomenal and their ambition or whatever, but their colour is a little bit off. And also, different cultures have different kind of attitudes to colour as well. So I, I always enjoy... For me, colour is quite politicised, you know, in that men, for instance, shrink from it. So I have a rule, I never buy black clothes. Um, but men on the whole dress to be invisible. You know, because they 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 want to. They, I call it the portable bird hide, which mm. they want to wear. You know, so they can look out at the world and and ex, ex, you know. And I think that men are, are less comfortable about being the one who's looked at, mm. which is a big part of the joy of being a transvestite is that you are the one that's looked at. And I think a lot of men would like some of that action. They just don't quite feel comfortable about how they might have to do what they might have to do yeah, to yeah, get yeah. that attention. Logistics to get that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the work. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's good to know about the black. So we should tell your students at St. Martin's never design you a black dress because you'll never buy it. Oh, well, I, I say that, but if you know, it was good enough, I've, obviously I break my own rule. But yeah. Maybe it needs to have a lot of volume. Like it could be about the silhouette. Yeah, yeah but black is a, like, I think it's a lazy default. The fashion world is particularly prone to it. You know, you look at the fro on a lot of shows and mm -hmm. you know, all, everyone's wearing black. Mm -hmm. Amazing. You're amazing. Thanks. Thank you for coming on. <laughs> fun. Always I was actually fun. thinking in your new show, that work about the tax havens on the car, um, the colours in that work are totally like intense yeah. i was actually trying to imagine having to live with that work like the actual brightness of the green and yeah. like do you do you often put colors together in in a way to sort of contrast or or shock or something the but if you think, i do think about you know it's either going to be in a museum or in someone's house and it's and it's and it's a big thing it's three by two meters so it's going to be the dominant artwork in the room so it might as well really pop you know and it, and, it, and i i even have a colored frame you know so, to sort of help the that I want it to be a kind of pop object. Mm. Um, yeah, I've done prints that are black and white, you know, and, and I can I enjoy those. But which I've seen actually being made at mm. uh, Pauper's Press yeah. over the years when we were doing. Yeah, prints Pauper's ourselves. Press are great. Yeah. What's next for Grayson? Uh, next is uh, what's next? Uh, my next thing is I'm doing a couple of my stage shows in Australia. Oh yeah, um, in January, and then I've got almost immediately a show opening in Bath 
called Grace and Perry, The Pre-Therapy Years, which is all my early work. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah, so well, it's all pre-92. Yeah. Is Louisa Buck's work going to be? I there? think Louisa Buck will have some pieces in it. Amazing. And it's, uh, yeah, it's going to be fun seeing, I haven't seen those for like 30 odd years. Wow. So is that going to be, do you think that's going to be tough for you? No, it'll be fun. You know, they're, I, 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 I'm kinder to my old work now. You know, I used to smash it if I had a mood with it, but now I'm kind of more forgiving of it. And it's sort of funny. And, and I'm still there in a raw form, you know, yeah. all of the anger, all of the naughtiness, teasing, it's yeah. all there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's quite an interesting location, Bath. If you think of your current show in Mayfair and then that show in Bath, I've always loved Bath because of the history, you know, yeah. mm. a bit like somewhere like Rome. It's got that sense of timelessness. And yeah. It was because the museum there came up with the idea and asked me, but also it's going to tour. I think it's going to, like, around the country, I think it's going to, like, Norwich, Chatsworth and York, I think. Brilliant. So out of every artist we've met, I think you're somebody that has a very strong sense of self yeah. and also incredible self-confidence and drive if because we have a lot of younger artists listening to this yes. what advice would you give like a younger artist now oh yeah it's tricky i think it's i think it's harder than ever to be a, a an artist now because there's so many more students and and things and it's you know more expensive and it's difficult um i would say um think about the art world and then think about what you want out of it you know do you want to be you know, do you are you where, where are your passions? Because you've also got to think about you want to make a living. So I always thought when I left college, there were sort of two main arteries you could go on. One was the kind of I, I used to call them um, the Acme artists after the kind of artist studio um, organization, and they were kind of they would do artists, they would do art that was like uh, political uh, activist, public facing. Um, probably uh, publicly funded quite often as well and worthy. Mm -hmm. And then there would be the other side that I called them the trendies who would make art that was quite fashionable and sensuous and covetable and sort of aimed at the collector more. And, you know, you, you can make those... I mean, there's there's a whole spectrum in between those two mm. things. And I, I like to think, you know, I'm somewhere in between those things. But, you know, I, I always did go for the collector end of it. You know, I've always made things that people wanted to buy. My very first show sold out, even though the top price was 80 quid. I was going to say, because you sold work very quickly, didn't you? For like 30 quid, 80 I've quid. I've always sold You've always really sold, well. Yeah. And my advice to young people is don't overprice your work. A, you'll get more studio space because you better clear it out. And B, it's like they're your ambassadors out there. You know, they're on people's walls and and particularly sell to give real discount to journalists early on as well. <laughs> Good well, we, we interviewed Louisa Buck. We interviewed Louisa Buck for this and she spoke about the pot from when she was pregnant and about to have her first child yeah. or something and you gave her a pot of her giving birth. If a journalist, if, a, if an Love artist it. journalist wants your work, you know, be really flattered because they've probably got great taste because they look at a lot of art. True. And then B, give them a discount because they'll be your ambassadors. You know, and it's great. And yeah. I think that's excellent. Good advice. And put, oh, the other thing I would say is don't overuse this tip, but um, put the names of famous collectors on your pots occasionally. I heard that one. <laughs> Apparently they then buy it. So if you put their yeah. name on only, the pot, I never use it. I their vanity and ego will be like, he's mentioned me on my pot. I'm going to buy that pot. Yeah. I need that pot. Yeah, I need that it? pot. Yeah. You need to put Russell's name on one. It's almost like a portrait you've done of someone, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So I've only I've done, used that about once a decade, but it bang worked every time. Amazing. Yeah. Love that. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This has been an absolute joy. And um, 
for all images of the artworks we've spoken about today, you can see it at our Instagram at TalkArt. Yeah. Are you on Instagram? Yes, I am. What's your What's your handle? Uh, Alan Measles. <laughs> Is it okay? Mm. I'm not sure. I've seen your Instagram weirdly. No, I've only had it. I've only been on it about a month. How are you finding it? It's different from Twitter because I love Twitter and I've been on that for years and years. Uh, Instagram is kind of sort of benign. It's less trolling. Yeah, you're very aware very quickly. Somebody put it very well the other day. They said it immediately makes you think about the muscularity of your images. And that was bang on because, you know, you look at an image and if it pops off the screen, then it works. And so I've started to think much more visually about what I put up. Whereas Twitter, it's just like snark, snark, snark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I find it incredibly like you, you can learn so much because you can sort of really get into images of, yeah. of if you don't know something, you can kind of start to learn about scour it. Scour someone's yeah. grid, as they call it. Oh my God, I hate that. Yeah. goes like, I love your grid, bro. Yeah, I tend to go to Pinterest quite a lot. When I I'm hate Pinterest. Why do you hate Pinterest? Because you click on it and then it goes to some other kind of estuary somewhere else. I don't know, I find it... That's exactly how I work, because so you click on an image and then there'll be all related image underneath it. Right. So, you you refine it very quick. You get mm. to you know if you're looking for a certain thing, you're like I'm looking for a vase, but then you think oh I want a blue vase, and then it's like a blue vase with flowers mm. on, and then a blue vase with flowers that are, are actually squares, mm. and then you know you you, you can you refine can it down. down. Right, right, right. I've never quickly. used Pinterest. I always thought Pinterest was like interior designers, which I guess was good for your research. It's a lot of art. It's a lot of art fashion. <laughs> fashion is very good. I use it a lot when I'm looking you know looking for inspiration for outfits. Mm. Mm. Okay, interesting. A lot of fashion it on it. Yeah, I haven't done it. Um, there is trolling on Instagram oh. because I've had lots of trolling in the last few weeks. Trolling, I've had, isn't it? Trolling, not sorry, trolling. 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 It's a bit like Polari, Oh, God, it? I'm going to get a lot of hate now. But, no, I've had lots of like emoji shits sent to me. Emoji? Why no, emoji? anything right? I don't know. I mean, another uh, thing I'd say to young people, you know, get anxious about social media, just don't read below the line. You know, yeah, yeah. They, they take the comments off. Yeah. It's a lot easier. No, I had someone write to me saying that I was dead inside and that when I smile, it's so fake. Had another one saying, am I sleeping, Sorry about that. Am I sleeping <laughs> with you? And that like all this kind of weird shit yeah. and that they hate me because I am. I'm not, I'm not sleeping with him. Thanks Aww. very much. But anyway, <laughs> so there is definitely trolling. Yes. Trolling? With emojis. Yeah. Trolls. Yes. Yeah. Good times. Uh, well, thank you so much, Grace thank and Perry. Thank you very much. It's been fun. Um, we'll everyone. be back very soon, very everyone. Soon. Thanks, Thanks for listening. Bye. You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamant and Russell Tovey. Follow us on Instagram at TalkArt, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in this episode. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.